Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast on spiritual direction and spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Thank you for listening. Learn more about our work and the work of spiritual direction and spiritual companionship on our website, sdicompanions.org. I hosted a free preview webinar session with Father Adam Bucko, who will be facilitating an upcoming webinar series called Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Spiritual Direction and Companionship for a World That Has Lost Its Way. This episode, we share the audio of that free preview webinar conversation that I had the privilege of having with Father Adam. Join our community of spiritual companions and wayfarers for this upcoming three-part webinar exploring heartbreak for spiritual directors and how to turn it to our advantage through readings, deep conversations, dialogue, and discernments with one of SDI's most compelling teachers, your heart will be open and be renewed. We will be reading portions of Father Adam's newest book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, designed for every person trying to live at the intersection of contemplation and justice, but will be especially resonant for spiritual directors and companions. Greetings, everybody. Uh, this is, uh, my name is Matt. I am the creative director for STI, and uh, we're here for a free webinar session preview uh, for our upcoming four-part, I believe, webinar session called Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, uh, and we are joined by Father Adam Bucko. Uh, what, a, what a treat to have this time with you, uh, just as a, an introduction for Father Adam. Uh, he's been a committed voice in the movement for the renewal of Christian contemplative spirituality and the growing new monastic movements. He's taught engaged contemplative spirituality in Europe and the United States and has authored the upcoming, and I think, release, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation, and co-authored Occupy Spirituality, a Radical Vision for a New Generation, and the New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living committed to an integration of contemplation and just practice. Adam co-founded an award-winning nonprofit, the Reciprocity Foundation, where he spent 15 years working with homeless youth living on the streets of New York City, providing spiritual care, developing programs to end youth homelessness, and articulating a vision for spiritual mentoring in a post-religious world. Adam lives in New York with his wife, Kyra Jewelingo, who is a Buddhist teacher and former nun in the community of Thich Nhat Hanh. Together, they lead the Buddhist Christian community for meditation in action. Father Adam, welcome. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for this opportunity to be able to be here and to share. Well, the opportunity is ours because we get an hour with you. And uh, as far as SDI goes, last we saw you, you were giving a keynote uh, for the 2021 Renaissance Conference, which was an all virtual gathering that we did uh, in April 2021. And, and you spoke to the notion of letting your heartbreak be your guide. And it is, it is a real, uh, it's just a, it's, it's, I don't want to call it a joy. I don't know what to call it, but it's it's wonderful to see that that theme has carried on for you and, and been a creative pathway for you to writing this book, uh, which uh, the themes are such that we will explore in our webinar, but it's called Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. And so I just want to begin, Father Adam, by asking you to to share that theme with us. What's what's the theme about and, and uh, how did you come to writing this book? Yes, thank you. So, you know, uh, in the book, I tell a story that kind of inspired uh, the title of this book, as well as many of the things that I do in my life. And in the book, I tell this story about some years ago being invited to give this talk uh, in London at this very nice community that's an old church, uh, a church that has a very specific kind of history where um, some decades ago it was bombed by uh, IRA 
Uh, and then when the church was rebuilt, uh, the bishop of that particular church uh, decided that this should be um, a center for uh, reconciliation and peace. Uh, and so I gave a talk at the church and there were lots of young people um, there. And then after the talk, uh, a young woman uh, approached me, asking me if I would have a conversation with her. And so we spoke for an hour and a half or so. Um, you know, that particular church in its courtyard, it has this beautiful Bedouin tent. So I remember sitting there, you know, sipping tea. And, you know, this particular young person had uh, many questions about her life. And those questions were really kind of very usual questions that a young person would have, namely, what am I going to do with my life? How am I supposed to discern what is my calling um, in this particular uh, seemingly broken world? Questions about how to respond to everything that is not working in our world without feeling paralyzed or overwhelmed by worry. And so we sat there, you know, and... To be quite honest with you, I felt like I didn't really have much to offer. I was a bit preoccupied with wanting to make sure that I leave uh, in time to catch my plane to New York, you know. Um, but at some point, you know, as she was talking about really the advice that she was getting, namely to follow her passion, to follow what makes her feel good, I remember the advice that I got from one of my own mentors uh, who said, you know, whatever you do in your life, don't follow your bliss. Look at the world and see where following our bliss has gotten us to. Instead, follow your heartbreak. And so that's what I offered her, this particular teaching on following her heartbreak. And I left and came to New York and to be quite honest with you, I forgot about that conversation until months later, uh, I received a message from her. And she said that after, you know, that conversation, she really took that question of what breaks your heart uh, into her mind and heart. And she spent months with that questions. And she was quite frustrated because she felt like nothing really was opening. And then one day being quite frustrated, she turned on the TV. And so the stories of Syrian refugees arriving on the Greek island of Lesbos, women, children, men, all scattered and broken and some barely alive, escaping the violence, hoping that they can somehow survive the journey across the ocean, hoping really for a new life, you know. Um, and when she saw that, something clicked in her. Something was shattered, and she knew that she had to just buy a ticket and go to that island. And that's what she did without telling anyone. She bought a ticket, and the next day she went to that island and started assisting, you know, which meant picking people up from the freezing waters, women, children. Uh, and being there, you know, as she told me, broke her heart. It shattered her um, into pieces. It really brought her to her knees, but it also gave her a new life and a new joy. Not a false kind of joy that is the result of sometimes avoiding life's discomforts, you know, but rather a joy that knows difficulties and heartbreaks and yet it survives. And so this book was written during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, in many ways, many of the chapters from this book initially were offered as sermons um, during Zoom church, so to speak, because we were all in lockdown. Uh, some of the chapters were initially kind of developed through interviews, through different talks. Um, when, you know, especially since I'm writing from a context of New York and New York City, when people were dying all around us, where we were trying to create food, you know, efforts for people who were working in hospitals, uh, serving 24-7, 
And so I think what I've been trying to do with this book, and this is really, I think, what my practice of spiritual direction is really about, is to present stories, to offer teachings that can help people to touch something, to, to become open, to, to, to really be in a state of receptivity and listening so they can begin to hear that almost silent whisper of the divine that we all have access to deep within our hearts. And so this is what this book is about, you know, uh, through stories and teachings uh, and my own kind of autobiographical stories as well. Um, I'm trying to help people to look at their lives and to look at the world through that lens of deep listening. So the presence of God, the spirit of God can somehow touch their hearts, open those hearts to guidance. And then together as a community, which we will be creating during this uh, book study uh, program, uh, together where we can help each other to build courage to say yes to whatever that guidance is. Beautiful. Thank you for, for sharing that. What A couple of things that stand out for me Father Adam, in in that story, are the the accompaniment of the woman, right? Mm -hmm. As as she was dealing with her, the the strong feelings, you know. So there's there was that, and I, I would I uh, wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, but also the fact that she didn't necessarily know what to do with that heartbreak until later, and that's actually like a pretty strong response to travel around the world and actually go meet refugees face to face but it sounds like that part came later and first there was just the being with the heartbreak and i wonder if you can speak to that yes and you know a lot of the methodology that is kind of present in between the lines in my book but also uh, in my own spiritual direction practice uh, really comes from um a decade and a half of me accompanying homeless youth on the streets of New York City and really serving as their spiritual guide and companion. Um, and what I've learned during that time is that very few people might be interested in, consciously interested in religion or even in spirituality. But most people struggle with that one question, which this young woman had, which is, what am I going to do with my life? How can I touch that something that I deeply intuit in myself and employ it in service of a world that hopefully can reflect more compassion and justice and kindness and beauty? And what I've discovered during that time, you know, with questions such as what breaks your heart or the Howard Thurman question, what makes you truly alive, is that a lot of spiritual practice, a lot of spiritual direction, I think, is essentially about helping people to hold those very powerful questions in such way that it almost feels like they are holding and are being present to those questions with every cell of their being, with every cell, you know, of, of who they are. And I think the guidance is to really be present, and that's, of course, what contemplative practice is about, and to allow the reality that is being evoked by those questions to almost shatter us in some way, where the operating system can kind of crack a little bit. By operating system, I mean, you know, the program that no normally runs us. And in my experience, what happens in those moments is that there's a moment in which we feel something, which I call the impulse of God. And that kind of gets through. And so then I think the goal of spiritual direct direction is to be able to help people to name that experience, that 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 moment, uh, and then to guide them in such way where they can be offered practices and narratives that can help them 
to stay connected to that impulse of, of the divine in themselves and to build their lives around that, where that becomes the guiding force uh, in their lives. And this staying with those questions and with the reality that those questions evoke, that's what contemplative practice is really about. And I think that's why it's really important to be able to guide people into that state of receptivity and listening through different ways of you know, working with every individual in, in ways that can help them to arrive at that space of receptivity and listening where they can simply bear witness both to the questions, but also to the reality that those questions evoke in their lives. And in my experience, what happens is that it actually takes a lot of courage to name the experience that happens. Um, and once that experience is named, it often has something to do with who we need to be in our lives, what kind of choices we need to make. And then we need to really be able to offer what Richard Rohr calls that dangerous permission to say yes to that intuition, to say yes to that calling, so to speak. Yeah, I and I, I want to come back to this um, sort of the contemplative practice and the path that guides one to that that sort of moment, that clarion call, as it were. Mm-hmm. But you 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 touch on this. And I mean, this is the the theme of your book is how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so you have uh, you have divided it into these three, really four sections. But the first three sections, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on because I think this will reveal the the process of this. Um, and those three are listening to life, touching what frightens us, and interrupting silence. So maybe we'll just begin with listening to life. What what is that theme? And yeah, how do you how should we understand that? Yeah, so listening life, listening to life is really about cultivating that receptivity. And you know, one of the practices that I offer for that uh, is this practice of going into the desert of our hearts. And it's a practice uh, based on the teachings and life of Catherine Doherty, who was this amazing woman, you know, not very many people know her. She was a Russian immigrant. She was born as a baroness. She served as Thomas Merton's spiritual mother before he became uh, a monk. And he's She's actually mentioned in his best-selling book, The Seven-Story Mountain. But she brought to the West, you know, eventually she kind of gave everything away and started working with the poor and started this organization called Friendship House and Madonna House, where she brought this Eastern practice and offered it to people. And it's the practice of Pustynia. Pustynia is a Russian and also Polish, I mean, Polish word for the desert. And so, uh, you know, she's encouraging people to develop this practice where maybe once a month or maybe a few days a month, they go into their pustinia, into their desert, you know, and that could be a room in your house, that could be a place in nature, and that could be really anything, just a place of prayer. Um, And you spend the day just fasting on bread and water, gathering all of the marginalized parts of your heart, of your life, bringing them to God, engaging in a heartful conversation with the divine, where you really name everything, where you, you know, kind of just give it all to God. And then you simply sit in the state of receptivity and listening completely kind of spent in this trust, Trusting that somehow what, you know, what what will happen is that you will hear what she calls the word of God. Um, And that could come in the form of an intuition that could come as a, um, you know, as a text, spiritual text that you may be brought with you. That could come as this kind of a feeling. And you know that it came because you feel literally infused with life 
and there's clarity and there's a sense of direction. You literally, even if just for a moment, see your life through the eyes of the divine, uh, you see. And so this first chapter is really about cultivating that kind of posture towards our lives. And I do it, you know, through stories, through teachings. Uh, so this particular, you know, the first uh, section on listening to, to God, uh, you know, has several stories that are meant to be evocative. Uh, it has several different teachings and it has some prayer practices. But the core element of, of, of that first part is really learning how to go into the desert of our hearts, how to sit there with our confusion, with our nothingness, and how to cultivate this trust and this sense of receptivity. Uh, so we may be ready for when the teaching, uh, you know, uh, will come uh, to us from the divine. <laughs> Uh, that's beautiful. I hear, you know, the 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 practice of devoting a day uh, to to this almost like a retreat, being with our questions, speaking them aloud, you know, whatever is there for us, whatever emotions, uh, to just let them kind of happen and you know speak them aloud, and and then wait on a response. And so I, I, I have a follow-up question and it has to do with deserts, the state mm -hmm. of deserts and, and a little more about that. So you, you share about, you know, the desert maybe being like some of that heartbreak, but what is the importance of that desert state, whether it is an internal state of being or you mentioned nature as a possibility for that too? Yeah, so I think internally, you know, what I've what I've realized uh, in the years when I was doing a lot of traveling and leading a lot of retreats for especially young adults and young people who who were kind of interested in pursuing spirituality seriously, uh, I realized that it's very important that people have uh, a proper framework or an understanding for how spiritual life happens for those you know, maps that in a Christian tradition were created by St. John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila. Now, obviously, those guys didn't have access to contemporary psychology. So some of that stuff needs to be updated quite a bit. But what I've discovered is that many people, you know, when they get on a spiritual journey, and this is what John of the Cross talks about, initially have a lot of experiences of consolation. Um, they it's it's a kind of a falling in love stage, you know. There's this sense that our practices are working and that we're opening to something very profound, to something that gives us peace, to something that is infusing us with passion and a new direction. And then after a while, that stops, you know. Um, and uh, that's when many people... Uh, make decisions like, should I change a teacher? Should I change a spiritual director? Should I maybe change my practice? Or maybe if they are religious, change a denomination or a tradition and etc. cetera. Um, and those are what we would call dry periods of spiritual life. And in fact, for those familiar with the map for spiritual growth, uh, developed by St. John of the Cross, we know that it's not necessarily that we're doing something wrong. In fact, those dry periods can be periods of progress, and, and that dryness might be an indication that we're actually making progress. The divine is inviting us deeper into the deeper sense of presence, and we're venturing there, but our spiritual senses have not been developed yet, so we are not yet perceiving it. And so, in a way, being able to sit with that dryness, being able to sit with what is, being able to sit with our complexities, with our conflicting motivations, with our experiences of consolation, but also 
you know, with our experience of absence where we feel abandoned by the divine. I think that in many ways, to me, that is what it means to go into the desert of our hearts, uh, to be able to sit there and even feel like perhaps we are so thirsty and yet nothing is coming and developing that trust, that sense of consent, that sense of I'm here no matter what happens, you know. And so in that sense, I think uh, deserts are very important because in fact, it's very difficult to make any kind of progress without learning how to get comfortable in that desert experience. On the other hand, in terms of physical spaces, you know, we know that specific physical spaces especially places in nature, but also places like cathedrals, places like holy sites, they somehow infuse us with, with, with courage and sometimes make trust easier, you know? And, and especially places in nature, sometimes the, 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 the energy of, of, of the, the, the presence that is there just kind of helps us to relax, to, 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 to quiet down so that inner voice, that inner light may be easier to detect. And then, of course, places where a lot of people pray, like holy sites, I believe that, you know, just the energy of all of those prayers uh, just really hold us in such way that, again, it's easier to make some of those steps um, and, you know, at least in a Christian tradition, the spiritual life, um, you know, there's kind of no way out of the woods, but through the woods. I think it was the Dalai Lama who said that uh, Christian spiritual tradition, a lot of it is really about dying. Hmm. So a lot of it is not meant to feel very comfortable, yeah. you know. Yeah. Even though these days, you know, we emphasize wellness a lot, we emphasize kind of you know, psychological, and all of that is important. That's why, for example, in our community, people uh, are required both to see a therapist and a spiritual director, because this way we can kind of really approach that in a holistic way. Wow, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it almost sounds paradoxical, right? But it is in yeah. that the dryness and the aridity of the desert you know, whatever state of being that is, that, that we learn to trust, that we learn to let go, we learn to stop sort of projecting or seeking, you know, a St. John of the Cross is such a, a, a important guide to me in my own, in my own, mm -hmm. in my own life to mm -hmm. uh, that desolation, the sense of desolation is actually a place of real spiritual fruit bearing. Yes. And, you know, to really consent to that, like something in us has to die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we can't force it along. You have to sort no. of, have, it's, the desert is not going to leave us until we learn what it is yeah. that we need to die to. And, you know, I mean, that's a profound thing. And, and it's a very difficult thing. And, I mean, that's why it's very important that whoever goes on this journey goes on this journey connected to a proper and well-informed uh, spiritual guide, a spiritual yes. companion. Because, you know, as someone recently said something, uh, I think it's actually a quote from St. Teresa of Avila, but I read something recently uh, about retreats. And the quote was, if, if you go on the retreat and you're directing your own retreat, um be sure to know that it's the devil who's the director of the retreat and i mean i know this is a very drastic language and it belongs to 16th century uh you know but this idea that we really need someone and hopefully not just a spiritual guide but also a community in which we can practice vulnerability in which we can discern together in which we can ask authenticating questions uh, so this way um, we can be more sure that whatever it is that we're hearing whatever it is that we're receiving that it's actually coming from the divine and that it's not just our own projection you know 
Yeah, so important, so important. And it's, uh, I can tell that you have, you've gleaned from experience the, the need for both a spiritual director and a therapist to walk with you in, in those desert places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the second part of your book is called Touching What Frightens Us. I'll ask you to unpack that a little bit. Yes, so this particular part of the book is really related to, you know, while the first part is about really listening to our lives, the second part is about listening to the world and listening to the world in such way that we can really touch those experiences that normally we would want to avoid. Um, so, you know, it's uncomfortable to witness uh, all the suffering in the world. It's uncomfortable to walk the streets of New York City and realize how many homeless youth are there panhandling. It's uncomfortable to, uh, you know, drive through a city at night and realize that so many people are forced into sex work. It's uncomfortable to turn on the news and realize that we had yet another uh, mass shooting. You know, it's uncomfortable to, uh, to realize that, you know, we are living in segregated neighborhoods and that some people have been perhaps uh, prevented from, 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 from living in certain neighborhoods. All of that is uncomfortable. And uh, I think that sometimes a lot of our spirituality, especially you know, during initial stages of our spiritual journey can turn us into people who are very much focused on kind of practices that, you know, basically do a lot of navel gazing, you know. And so what I'm encouraging people to do is to develop this deep quality of listening deep within, but then to extend that quality to embrace the whole world and especially the world around us. And so in the second chapter, I talk about quite a few experiences that I've had, you know, with homeless youth, with, uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, in refugee camps, in different communities where I've served over the last uh, almost two decades, you know. Um, and this particular chapter really focuses on uh, this teaching that we kind of sort of mentioned indirectly from John of the Cross, uh, the teaching on the dark night, but also not just looking at it as this kind of a personal reality, that uh, psycho-spiritual reality that we might be experiencing, but looking at that teaching through the lens of some of the liberation theologians from the global south who for a long time have been saying that the dark night is not just an experience that we might experience deep within you know it's not just a personal experience that in this day and age it looks like the whole world is going through the same pattern and if the world is indeed going through some kind of a global dark night so to speak then we can learn a lot from the mystics about how to relate to all the suffering, how to relate to the fact that our world seems to be turning into a hospital of broken souls, broken systems, you know, broken institutions and etc. And I think that this kind of a spiritual and contemplative way of relating to the world in that way helps us to see that this time around, most likely, we won't be able to think ourselves into a new kind of living. And that many of the solutions that might be coming up in our activism and, uh, and you know, work for justice, in fact, might be coming from those same places that created the, the problems that we are witnessing. And so in this particular uh, you know, chapter, which also has a lot to do with spiritual guidance. I invite people to be present and to listen to the world's suffering in a different way. And then not to rush into solutions, but rather to do what the mystics tell us to do, what John of the Cross tells us to do, which is again, 
this sitting and waiting and bearing witness and trusting, waiting for that almost silent whisper of the divine to move us into the right kind of action, into the right kind of you know, community, uh, into the right kind of way of being. It, it's a very mystical path is what I hear in, in regards to the spiritual path that doesn't retreat from suffering, but faces it full on and also shares in the suffering of the world and sees it and understands. I, I, think, I think what I'm hearing is that as one is touching on this that frightens us, you know, this is not just my own journey of healing yes. that it's it's shared and as you were talking about the energies of the prayers before that what whatever whatever heartbreak i might be experiencing is not just my own heartbreak okay? yes exactly 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 we almost have like an obligation you know a responsibility to the world to to face that not just for our own healing but for for the healing of the world the, you call the yes i truly believe that you know and again uh, you know it's not a very comfortable thing to say yes to because this kind of way of living will shatter us into pieces but what I'm saying, I guess, is that being shattered is a good thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, again, provided that we have proper guidance and that we have a proper framework uh, that can hold us. And by framework, I also include in that a community of friends who are accompanying us uh, on this journey. So the third part is interrupting silence. Interrupting silence. And I, yeah, I wonder what you mean by that. Maybe it's, it's uh, well, I can speculate, but I'll just ask you. <laughs> so I think you can kind of relate to it on a few different levels. Um, one way of relating to it is you know chapter 18 of my book uh, the title of the chapter is claiming our irrelevance so god can be relevant and in that chapter i talk specifically about how how i discovered what contemplative action means uh, and I talk about the experience that I've had with, you know, accompanying homeless youth, where initially I was kind of a well-trained, you know, therapeutic presence in their lives. And I've learned many skill, you know, many tools. I've developed many tools and was there kind of really helping them to fix things in their lives. And I discovered that that was not working and that I needed to approach every person who knocks on the door of our center in the same way that I approach contemplative prayer. And what is contemplative prayer for me about? It's about sitting in the state of receptivity and listening and opening to that impulse of God deep within or in our midst. And then when it comes, consenting to it. So it can begin to uh, live through me as much as possible. And in my experience, what happens is that it really kind of, you know, utilizes everything that we have that we've developed, but have let go of, uh, and basically gathers all of those pieces and transfigures them into something that then becomes our unique gift and offering that we can offer in the world. And so my experience of that was learning that with, with homeless kids, essentially the first through things that we talked about, approaching people, first listening and creating a space of listening within, then being present to the suffering of people who knock on our doors. And what I've discovered is that when I can really show up and bear witness to that without any buffers, what I'm asked to do is to accompany people to go into the depths of their suffering and to hold that suffering with them. 
And so then the experience is being shattered, being broken by what we are holding. And then there's this sense of the divine presence just kind of showing up in our midst and picking up whatever is left of us in that experience and reassembling that into something that becomes the right way of being present, uh, that become that manifests itself as the right words that we need to say to each other and etc. And in those moments, it's not really even clear who's helping whom. And so what I'm saying, and this is kind of maybe a helpful framework, is from uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, who was a Zen master and a social activist, who developed this framework for social action that was actually very similar. He said, you know, not knowing, show up in a way where you put everything you know aside, then bear witness to it. And then when you stay long enough with it, the right action will naturally arise. And so this third part of the book is really about that right action that naturally arises. If we are able to show up in this receptive state, not being afraid for the world to enter our hearts and to shatter them, and then just being there with all of that in trust, eventually something happens and the divine spirit begins to flow into us and then through us if we can consent to it. And that is our manifestation in the world, both as spiritual directors offering guidance, but also as activists, people who are engaged. And so this is what I mean as one of the ways in which we begin to interrupt silence. First of all, uh, we realize that you know, doing contemplative practice is not enough. And second of all, we interrupt silence um, in a sense that whatever is needed, it can be kind of born through us in that particular moment. The right kind of action, which is a loving action, will emerge. And, you know, that sounds very prefigurative in a way that we just sit and wait and then, you know, something happens and etc. I think as we practice it more and more and more, it becomes just the kind of natural posture in which we live where we become a space through which the spirit can kind of, that the spirit can occupy and, 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 and work. So that's really fascinating. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Father Adam, to hear how you discern maybe not just for yourself, but for others, when the voice of God uh, is spoken, you know, within one's depth. Um, how you learn to identify that. Um, but what I what I hear from you too is that maybe that's a a process. It's a process and it's oftentimes a very long process, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and this process, I mean, for me, it requires a lot of praying and wrestling and being present and 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 eventually kind of being given a clarity that is not just my clarity. It's always the clarity that emerges, you know, kind of in our midst. So this work for me is always a work that is a relational work with each other and with God. And it's a process and it really requires a lot of prayer and conversation and sometimes fasting and receptivity and and eventually just like the rest of the process it feels like okay there's a sense of yes that emerges in in the relational field yeah, it's not a science you know it's yeah. not something that we can kind of follow three steps and get to a yes and yet you you can trust this process that if it's done with a, an open heart and an authenticity and a willingness to be shattered and broken by it. Yes. It and you know, what I've also discovered, and I mean, I've discovered that uh, in my life as well as in the lives of others is that that initial knowing that we get, that initial sense of a call that that we receive in this process 
when we commit to living it out in the world, usually the living out happens in a way that is slightly different, but similar enough to what our intuition was that we know that there is no way that we could have orchestrated on our own, you know? I don't know if that makes sense, but... It, it totally does. And I, I think it's it's funny because Reverend Seifu and I were just talking about this, the mm-hmm. in the relational container of spiritual accompaniment, spiritual direction, spiritual companionship that they're that when when someone is sharing and someone is really hearing the other person and they're sharing that there is an energy, there is mm-hmm. a he called it spiritual heat. Yes. Um, I love that. Yeah, I love it too. It's still with me. And it's and it it sort of it compels things out of us that, you know, as a spiritual companion, I might share and it it might be like the exact thing you need to hear, but it, it didn't come from me. Exactly. <laughs> So that's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that in because I think that that is very, very important. Yeah. It's a, it, I mean, it's an important part of our work. And I, mm-hmm. I believe an important part of this webinar that, that we're going to be doing too for spiritual directors and companions is tuning to that. Yes, and you know, in terms of the webinar, I mean, my hope for the live sessions is really that as people work with the text of this book, and as they engage in some of the recorded teachings, that they can really just bring their thoughts and questions so we can kind of really get into it. Uh, In a way where, you know, I'm not just talking about things that I think are important, but where together we can kind of discover the answers or or the leadings of the spirit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you also, you know, as part of your new monastic movement and in this book, you speak to creating and adopting a rule of life. And it's a, I, I love the idea. It feels very creative to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And so how do you how do you create and adopt a rule of life? And where does that come from? What is the foundation of that? Yes, yeah, so, you know, uh, I think in the last few years, there has been a lot of uh, conversations about, um, you know, having some kind of a rule of life. Um, and... You know, in my in my life, uh, I think the way that it manifested when I was uh, 19, I ended up uh, at a Hindu monastery, uh, just initially for a few months. And what I discovered when I arrived, uh, literally within days, was that something in me just kind of harmonized. And I think what it was is that the whole community had a very specific schedule where the bell would ring and we would show up for meditation. The bell would ring, we had some prayers and then we would eat mindfully. The bell would ring and then we had, you know, what was called karma yoga, selfless service, which was really work, but work that required the spiritual kind of awareness. Then the bell would ring, we would have another meditation. So our lives were ordered, ordered in such way that we would be able to go within and hang out in that space of silence and receptivity, and also ordered in such way that our interactions with others would be very mindful, heart-centered. And when conflicts would arise, we would go back with all of that into silence and then show up again from that silent space. And so, in a sense, when we talk about the rule of life, we are really talking about a rhythm of life that has practices, that has a specific kind of a schedule for people who live in the world that could allow us to, as St. Benedict says, take breaks during the day and learn how to sanctify the hours of our day, you know? Um, And so... The the book itself proposes 
uh, a simple rule of life that actually has quite a few commitments in it. And, uh, you know, what I'm proposing is few very simple things for organizing our lives. Like, for example, protecting ourselves from a life of constant distraction and adopting a simple and modified of life, life of digital minimalism, where one can make conscious decisions about when the world can get hold of them and when they might want to be unreachable and not distracted, you know, um, where we make conscious decisions, for example, to have two periods of contemplative prayer each day, where we spend at least an hour uh, in receptive silence, when during the day we practice a form of mindfulness, like, for example, you know, I too have a phone, um, but on my phone, I have a mindfulness app. And that means that my phone has a beautiful bell that goes off every hour. And that's an opportunity for me to take a break, take a deep breath, notice what is present, and then say a prayer, connect whatever is present, bring it into alignment with my sense of the divine in that particular moment. Um, and where each day we conclude our day, you know, looking at our lives uh, through the practice of Ignatian examine, where we conclude today with specific reflections. What am I grateful for today? Where have I felt uh, the presence of the divine? Where have I missed an opportunity to welcome God or kindness or whatever into our lives? And is there anything I am sorry for today, you know? Um, and then also realizing that spirituality is a group sport, as my friend says, and that it's good to be in some kind of a community, uh, you know, a community that can allow us to really learn how to be vulnerable, learn how to uh, be able to confess our shortcomings, how to ask for forgiveness, how to offer forgiveness and etc. And then finally, all of that is not just meant as this kind of a journey of navel gazing something, you know, as Cornell West says, and I believe you maybe had him last year at, at your gatherings. I mean, he's been saying this for, I think now two decades that, um, <laughs> you know, uh, this is about love and justice, and justice is what love looks like in public. And so then I, I offer specific things that I think, again, can be very helpful for our engagement with the world, and those things uh, kind of come out of the chapters. And some of the things that I offer is that, you know, first of all, as contemplatives, as spiritual persons, I think, in this day and age, it's important to commit to engaging with the world from a place of prayer and contemplative practice and not ideology, because this gives us a felt sense of interconnectedness of all life in the divine, and this helps us to prevent othering, which is so prevalent. And, you know, I say this as someone who, as a kid, you know, is part of an anarchist movement, and I still am probably kind of, you know, left of Karl Marx and so many things. But I also remember that it's important for me to approach the world, not just through my ideology, but rather through contemplative practice. And then some other things like, you know, coming to terms with our social location and how it relates to systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, you know, um, making sure that we engage in direct service, that our hands are touching the hands of someone who's suffering. Um, and then also joining a social movement. And I talked about it, you know, in one of my talks, um, at, you know, uh, at, the sem at the gathering for your organization that we did a couple of years ago. But I think that, you know, this is a very kind of simple rule of life that I think can help us to make sure that we're not just talking about spirituality, but that we're actually creating an environment and a structure in our lives that can support our practice. Because doing it on one's own is very, very difficult. That's why, I mean, there are 
retreat centers, there are monasteries. You know, my wife as a former monastic. She was a nun for 15 years, uh, a Buddhist nun. And when she left the monastery, she realized how difficult it is actually to practice in the world. You know, uh, there is nothing to protect us. Uh, and every moment of the day, we're being sucked in uh, to the world, you know, and, and it's demands of being on all the time, of uh, being able to respond to things, you know, um, within minutes. Uh, I mean, this is the world that we're living in. And so creating a rule of life can help us to make sure that we're creating a container for our spiritual practice where it's easier to do it, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, it's just very hard to 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 do this. Well, you say it well. I mean, we we often find ourselves being sort of blown along by the wind of of the world, you know. And yeah. it's again paradoxical to consider that creating these rules and these boundaries for ourselves actually gives us agency and freedom. Yes. To have our our authentic spiritual life. And I, I wrote this down because it was so beautiful as part of this, making sure we are touching the hand of one who is suffering. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Because, you know, I mean, that is also very important because I think it's easy to make big pronouncements about justice yeah. and to sound right about things. But unless we're touching the hands of someone who is in pain, oftentimes, you know, it's just our minds producing stuff. Uh, and that, even though it may sound right, it may actually be quite detached from reality. And again, I think it's important to make big pronouncements and to engage with institutional, uh, you know, change and, and, and social movements and et cetera. But I think that it needs to be a nuanced and holistic way in which we do that, where it's not either or, but both may be true, where we serve, we are in relationship, and then from that place, we can, in an informed way, connect with a movement uh, that is trying to uh, change or adjust some of the circumstances that created that suffering in the first place. Yeah, I think that might be, I think that is probably the path forward for us out of a lot of our combative politics, you know, where, you know, you might have an argument that I 100% agree with, but when it's not like rooted in compassion and actually understanding the suffering, it, it kind of falls flat or yeah. it just sounds like more of the noise, you know, the noisiness. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, I think weaving that in is, is it's just a very it's something i'm going to try to do more actually as a result of this and yeah. um, so i'm mindful that we just have a few minutes left and so i'm going to ask amrutham to put the link to the webinar in the chat and ask you uh father adam maybe to just offer a, an invitation to to spiritual directors companions accompaniers seekers um how how you hope that this webinar helps us reflect on our roles in a world that has lost its way. That's the, the subtitle of this webinar. Yes, thank you, Matt. So uh, to all of the people present here, I hope that you will join me on this journey. Um, and my hope is that together we can create a space in which we can engage in real prayerful conversations in which we can name some of the realities that we're struggling with as spiritual guides, as spiritual companions. And then that somehow prayerfully, we can move towards each other in such way that those answers that we are seeking may become apparent. And so again, even though we're gonna be using, you know, my book, um, I hope that this is not, though, especially those live sessions, that it's not going to be about me offering some kind of teaching, but rather that it will be a place of deep conversation and deep exploration where we can create an environment 
in which it is easier to hear that voice of the divine in our midst. So I hope that you will join me. That's oh, a beautiful invitation. And we are so looking forward to having more of these deep conversations with you and hope that if you're listening here, you will join us for that, that webinar. Uh, it starts April 12th. Um, Father Adam, just really grateful for your time. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us that, that you haven't had an opportunity to share? Yet? No, this is, this is all. Thank you so much, Matt. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, and really thank you for what you brought into this conversation in terms of your own experience and presence. Um, I, 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 I loved learning from you. Oh, thank you. You're so welcome. I'm happy to happy to talk with you and happy to have you here and sharing with the SDI community and grateful to everybody who who came to the webinar today and we'll we'll post the recording at some point. And uh, Father Adam, I look forward to seeing you soon. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your... Thank you for listening. Or even write us a review. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.